you would turn to Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. We're going to be in verse 2 through 8, this poem, again this morning. If you would, read along with me. That's Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I just thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you have redeemed a people. That you have redeemed us, Lord, from slavery. That you've poured out your grace on our lives by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. I pray this morning that we see just how costly our freedom is. How costly our redemption is, Lord. Be with us this morning as we continue to look at this passage. I pray that you give us an understanding, Lord. A deeper understanding so we can better understand the New Testament and better understand our own faith, Lord. Be with us in your Son's name. Amen. Again, as I said last week, verses eight or 2 through 8 in Exodus 6... I believe is a poem. It's a poem from God to Moses to encourage Moses in a very discouraging time. Chapter 5, Moses has found himself in a dark place, a valley, discouragement. And God, once again, through the narrative of Exodus, comes and encourages Moses, and he encourages him with a poem. Last week, we really took a lot of time looking at this poem, and we said that there is two main parts of this poem. There's the historical part, which really can be summed up at the very end of verse 5, which says, I have remembered my covenant. In other words, God hasn't forgotten his covenant. He hasn't forgotten the promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Israel. Because of his covenant, he's going to act. And that really sets up the second part of this poem, the predictive part, what God is about to do, how God is going to act. In fact, Within the predictive part, the second part of this poem, there's seven I wills. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. In verses 6 through 8, there's seven promises. Seven I wills. And I just kind of want to walk through these I wills so you can see them very clearly. If you would, look at verse 6 again. It says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, 
I am Yahweh. Again, if you're looking at your scriptures, it's capital L-O-R-D. That means this is the name, the covenant name of, of God, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And the first I will comes after that. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Heavy burdens. In fact, chapter 5, the burdens get way heavier. An impossible task that has been given to the Israelites as slaves. The second I will comes after that. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Over 400 years of slavery under an evil nation, under an evil ruler, Pharaoh, the seat of Satan. The third I will, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is going to redeem Israel, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. In verse 7, the fourth I will, I will take you to be my people. God is going to adopt Israel as his very own, and I'll be your God. In verse 8, there's two more I wills. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. God is promising Moses and Israel a glorious future, a promised land. And this poem, of course, ends with the phrase, I am Yahweh. I hope you saw last week just how rich this passage is. It's, in fact, a very important passage for the Israelites throughout the history of Israel. I believe this passage also gives us a deeper understanding of a story in the Gospels. In fact, the Old Testament brings a richness to the New Testament that wouldn't be, be there, or we wouldn't have if we didn't take the time to examine the Old Testament thoroughly. There's a richness that we'd be missing without the Old Testament, and I hope you see that that is true today as we go through this passage and another place in Scripture. During the time of Jesus, the Jews celebrated uh, a Passover feast, this feast largely pointed the Jews back to the Exodus and the book of Exodus and the stories, the historical stories that happened in Exodus. It was a way of remembering what exactly happened to Israel in Egypt. According to the oral tradition or the oral law, the Passover feast had many elements that pointed back to different parts of the Exodus and they had four different cups that they would pass around and drink throughout the uh, festival or the feast throughout the whole meal. These four cups actually correspond with the four first I wills of Exodus 6. First cup cor corresponds with the first I will, I will bring you out. The second cup of the Passover feast during the time of Jesus corresponded with the second I will, I will deliver you. The third cup that was passed around corresponded with the third I will, I will redeem you. And the last cup, the fourth cup, corresponded with the fourth I will, I will take you. In fact, this last cup, the fourth cup, the Israelites would recite Exodus 6, verse 7 after they would drink it. They would say, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And in reality, this fourth cup pointed to the last four I wills. It was often called the cup of future blessings. So what's this have to do with the New Testament? 
well, as New Testament believers, we're not required by the law to celebrate the Passover anymore. But Jesus' last meal with his disciples was a Passover meal. That night, they would have sat down and the first cup would have been passed around to start the meal, which pointed to Exodus 6.6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. After drinking this first cup, bitter herbs would have been dipped into a fruit sauce and eaten while a message was given explaining the significance or the meaning of the Passover meal. The second cup, after this message was given, would have been passed around just before the unlivid bread. Again, the second cup pointed to the second I will, Exodus 6.6, 6, I will deliver you from slavery to them. It was after this that Jesus took the unleavened bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke 22.19 It's right here when Jesus started to change the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper or Communion, what we celebrate as New Testament believers. From here, the roasted lamb would have been eaten and the third cup would have been passed around. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. This cup of wine pointed to the third, I will, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. This is the cup that Jesus took and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus established communion. Right, what we celebrate as New Testament believers, it's this cup we drink as New Testament believers in remembrance of Christ. And we celebrate the redemption that we have in him. And I think it's important for us to know that it's the third cup, which correlates to the third I will of Exodus I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This leads to a really important question that I want to try to answer today. And that is this question, what is redemption? In fact, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings in our culture of what redemption is. What does it mean to be redeemed? Obviously, if you've read through the scripture, it's something extremely important in both Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. In fact, again, Exodus 6.6 6 says this, I will redeem you. It's Israel. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So what is redemption? Of course, to answer this, we need to look at Scripture. And there's three examples of the word redemption from a biblical context that I want to look at this morning to get an idea of what redemption meant in the Old and New Testament. Let's start with the New Testament. The first example is a New Testament example. Of course, the Greek word redemption is latrumai. Latrumai is used in Ephesians 1-7 where it says, in him we have redemption. That Greek word in the Roman culture is a word that referred to paying a ransom 
in order to release a person from bondage, especially slavery. In the Roman Empire, there was millions of slaves. In fact, it's estimated that one in every five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. Slavery was a major business in the Roman Empire. Redemption was a way of setting a slave free. One commentator said this, if a person wanted to free a loved one or a relative who was a slave, he would buy that slave for himself and then grant him freedom. That's what that word in Greek meant, redemption in the Roman Empire. First example of redemption is someone buying a slave for the purpose of setting that slave free. The second example is an Old Testament example. In fact, if you would, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 25, verse 47. If you don't know, Leviticus is in the beginning of your Bible. You can go to Exodus and make a right. Not a book we go to very often. In fact, many of you probably had Bible reading plans and stopped somewhere in Leviticus there. Didn't make it. Leviticus 25, verse 47. Again, we're looking at what it means in the Old Testament. What's redemption mean in the Old Testament? Verse 47 says this, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother besides him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with um, you, or to a member of the stranger's clan. In other words, let me just tell you what's going on here. If one man becomes rich, a, a stranger or sojourner, and, and another man becomes poor, and the poor man sells himself to the rich man as a slave because he's so poor. Look what it says in verse 48. And after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Well, how could he be redeemed? Verse 48. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. In other words, a brother, a cousin, uncle, a, a close relative may pay the price of a slave to buy him out of slavery and set him free. That's redemption. Verse 50. This is important. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his cell shall vary with the numbers of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a higher worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sell price. In other words, to buy this slave in the Old Testament, you would have to calculate the price, how much the slavery is worth to that person. The rich relative would pay that price to buy the slave to set him free very similar to the New Testament idea of redemption, the Greek word. Therefore, redemption in both Old Testament and New Testament, in the simplest understanding, is a slave being bought by a rich relative for the purpose of freeing that slave. This leads us to our third example of redemption. Of course, that's the Exodus. Think uh, about the book of Exodus, right? The end of Genesis, Israel was a small nation. In fact, it was 
only one family, a father and 12 boys. And this family was poor. This nation was small and it was without the land. It was poor. It was so poor, in fact, that they sold themselves into slavery because they had no food during a famine. They went to Egypt just to survive. They placed themselves under the authority of the Egyptians. They sold themselves into slavery because of a lack of food. That's how Genesis ends. Then we get to the book of Exodus, and as we will see, God buys them out of slavery. With a mighty hand, ten plagues, and with the death of a Passover lamb, God buys them out of slavery. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, a small, poor nation that becomes a slave nation. It's not why God chose them. God chose them out of his love. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, you are mine, Israel. I bought you out of the house of slavery. I redeemed you. Therefore, biblical redemption really is when someone wealthy is buying a slave for the purpose of freeing that slave. That's what redemption means, both Old and New Testament. Now, with that definition in mind, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says this, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now this one verse tells us four things about redemption. Who is the redeemer? Who is being redeemed? How much it costs or the price of redemption? And what is the results of redemption? Who is the redeemer? We'll look at verse 7 again. It starts with, in him context of this verse is, is Christ. In Christ. In fact, that phrase, in him, is just over and over and over and over again in this first part of Ephesians. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. True redemption, true freedom is only found in Christ, in other words. In him. Jesus is our redeemer. He is the rich relative that buys us out of slavery. Well, who is being redeemed? Well, look at verse 7 again. In him, that's Christ. In him, we have redemption. Jesus is the redeemer. We are the redeemed. Well, who's we? Well, the antecedent of we is found in verse 1. It's the saints at Ephesus. It's Christians. It's the saints. It's all of us that have put our faith in Christ. We are redeemed. The we is Christians. Christians are the redeemed. Remember the definition of redemption. 
someone wealthy, a redeemer, Jesus, buying a slave. Guess what? That's us. You might be thinking, I've never been a slave. I'm free. This is America. You are a slave. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ yet, you are a slave. You are enslaved. In fact, something interesting, I just find this interesting that, you know the Bible never uses the word free will anywhere? Us Christians like to fight over that word over and over again. It doesn't use it. The Bible teaches three things, I want to be clear, that about man's will. First, man has a will and he's free to follow his own heart. In other words, we're not robots. Our choices are our choices. Second, our choices matter. Before and after salvation, our choices matter. And third, we will be 100% responsible for the choices we make. But, I'm very careful to say that man is free only to follow his own heart. Here's the problem. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The Bible says before we were saved, our hearts were made of stone. Ezekiel 11.19, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The Bible says our hearts were uncircumcised. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. And Ephesians 2.1 says our hearts were spiritually dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Our hearts, deceitful, desperately sick and wicked, made of stone, uncircumcised, completely spiritually dead. And because we had hearts of stone, listen, this is so important, we were in bondage. We were slaves in slavery. The Bible never says free will anywhere, but you know what it does say over and over and over again? Unsaved man is enslaved to sin. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 6. We know that our old selves was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 7.14 For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that in your present, or that in your present, if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of 
obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, and stop there, who gets the thanks? God, that you who were once slaves to sin, of sin, have become obedient from the heart. God gets the glory for that. In other words, God changed our heart in salvation. Before we were saved, the Bible is clear that our hearts were made of stone. That we were in bondage. That we were not free. We were slaves. Just like Israel in Egypt. Poor and enslaved. But instead of being enslaved to the Egyptians, we were enslaved to sin. We needed a redeemer. We needed someone rich who could buy us out of slavery and set us free. Which leads us to the price of redemption. You know, to really understand the gospel, or to just really understand your own personal salvation, you need to understand an extremely important truth. How much it costs to set you free is in direct correlation with how bad, how evil, how ugly, and costly your sin was. How much we owed. Remember Leviticus, right? You had to calculate the price that would be paid to set the slave free. Well, look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, that's Christ, in him we, Christians, have redemption through his blood. You want to know how bad your sin was? You want to know how bad your sin is? Just look at the cross. It took the death of Jesus to set us free. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. In other words, was it silver or gold that bought us out of slavery? It didn't pay our debt. Our debt was way more costly. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. How much do you think that's worth? Infinite. We had an infinite debt on our heads. You know, that's why hell's eternal. Sin is infinitely bad, and it's paid off through eternity. It's infinitely bad because it's rebellion against an infinite God. Let me just give a story that illustrates this. I was in Indonesia about three years ago, and... I was driving around with an Indonesian man who has never left Indonesia. In fact, the, the island that we were on, he's never left that particular island. And he spoke English extremely well, so we had a really great conversation. Um, just totally different places that we've grown up. But as we're driving in this small town, this poor uh, neighborhood, there's people at the end of their little, on the end of the street, all the people, the different people outside, burning trash on the side of the road. And I kind of joking around said, man, if you did that in California, you'd go to jail. And he looked at me with a shocked look on his face. And he said, why would anyone go to jail for setting a fire? 
I told them, I said, a fire like that, you see that mountain, the whole thing would be on fire in California. He set a whole mountain on fire, and you couldn't believe it. Because Indonesia is just so green and wet, it rains like every single day there. The severity of the punishment caught him off guard. It wasn't until I explained the seriousness of the act that it made a little bit more sense to him that fires in California can cause major damage. The price to set us free, to buy us out of slavery, because of our sin, was death. And God has made this very, very clear, especially in the Old Testament. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. One commentator of this passage said this, The Old Testament was very careful to indicate that the shedding of blood was involved in sacrifice. In other words, sacrificial animals were not to be killed by strangulation. You would slit its throat and let blood drain out. You think about the cost to free Israel from Egypt. Passover lamb. We're going to get there. But you would cut the Passover lamb's throat, drain the blood, then paint the blood on the doorpost. You want to talk about vivid imagery. Old Testament sacrifices were purposely bloody to show the seriousness of sin. In fact, if you grew up in the Old Testament, right, if you grew up in Israel, you would see lamb after lamb getting their throats slit and blood drained. It was a bloody mess. In America, we hide ourselves from death. We don't even see our animals getting butchered. We just go to the grocery store and they're in little packages when we get there, right? In Israel, you would have vivid imagery of what it costs. Back Hebrews 9.11 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why death? Why blood? Well, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. That's what it costs. Before salvation, we owed a debt, and the debt was death price was death. And God was very upfront with man on this, and we talked about this at Easter, right? What did he tell Adam and Eve, if you sin, what will happen? You will die. In fact, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, the price of sinning and rebellion is death. And what happened? Adam and Eve ate, and right away they saw that they were naked, that they were guilty. Therefore, they were ashamed of their nakedness and guilt. And what did they do? They tried to cover their guilt with fig leaves, coverings that they made by their own hands. 
What's the problem? No death. There was no death involved. These coverings were made out of fig leaves. This was man-made works to cover their own guilt without death. What did God do? He said, that's not good enough. Therefore, in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God covered their nakedness, guilt, and shame by killing an animal and skinning it. He used that skin to cover them, cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Now just think about that for a second. This is the first time ever that Adam and Eve has seen death. They haven't seen a plant die. They haven't seen a bug get squished. They haven't seen an animal die. And God kills an animal, my guess, a lamb, and skins it in front of them and covers them, thereby saying, that's how bad your sin is. That's how serious sin is. It took death to cover their nakedness. It took death to redeem them from slavery. First Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Old Testament lambs that were slaughtered all pointed to Jesus. All pointed to the cross. Jesus poured out his life for us. Romans 3, 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's grace received by faith that leads to redemption, to freedom, forgiveness. And that leads us to the results of redemption. Simply forgiveness and freedom. One commentator said it this way. If redemption is the cause, then forgiveness is the effect. In other words, to redeem us, God had to forgive us our sins. Again, look at Ephesians 1.7. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What's interesting, in the history of Israel, lambs were slaughtered over and over and over and over again to show the price. The price of sin is death, right? which pointed forward to Christ. But there was another practice on the Day of Atonement that's, that's interesting. A commentator said this, Israel's greatest holy day, the Day of Atonement, on that day the high priest selected two unblemished goats, so two of them, two goats. One goat was killed, and his blood was sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice. That's the price for sin. Purposely bloody. But the high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolizing the laying of the sins of the people on that animal. The goat was then taken out deep into the wilderness 
so far that it could never find its way back. It symbolized that the sins of the people went with the goat, never to return to them again. Find this in Leviticus 16. This symbol shows that God forgives our sins completely. Completely. Psalms 103.10 says this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's the redeemed it's talking about. Verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward us who fear, to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God removes our transgressions. Again, look at Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us. I just love that phrase. God pours out his grace, his grace upon grace grace. John MacArthur says this. I love this quote. There are no second-class Christians, no deprived citizens of God's kingdom or children in his family. Every sin of every believer is forgiven forever. God knows how we were, how we are now, and how we will live the rest of our lives. He sees everything about us in stark, naked reality. Yet, he says, I am satisfied with you because I am satisfied with my son. When I look at you, I see him, and I am well pleased. We were slaves to sin. Now we are redeemed. Now our sins are forgiven. Now we are free. Again, the Bible never uses the word free will. But Christians are free. John eight thirty six. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. 1 Peter two sixteen. Live as people who are free. Romans six twenty two. But now that you have been set free from sin, we as Christians are free because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Again, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that's in Christ. Jesus is our redeemer. Redemption is only found in him. In him, we, Christians, those that have put their faith in him, and if you haven't put your faith in him, put your faith in him now. In him, we have redemption. We've been brought out. We've been bought out of slavery at a cost through his blood. That was the cost. And the result is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In Jesus, we have redemption. You know, that's what we celebrate every Lord's Supper. Next week, we'll be celebrating communion. We celebrate our redemption. 
normally read 1 Corinthians 11:25 when we do communion. And it says this, In the same way also he that Jesus took the cup. What cup is that? It's the third cup. It's the cup of redemption. It's the cup that points us back to the promise in Exodus 6, 6. The promise that says, I will redeem you. Listen again to Exodus 6, 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you. How? How is he going to redeem? With an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. Of course, as we'll see, this points directly to the ten plagues that happen that fall upon Egypt literally great acts of judgment. But Jesus in the gospel makes it very clear that this promise also points forward to him. It points forward to Jesus on the cross where we find our redemption through a great act of judgment. God's judgment poured out on Christ on the cross for us. Again, promise says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Jesus on the cross, in other words, took that great act of judgment by enduring the wrath that was owed to us. And I just think this is interesting, and I don't want to look too much into this. I want to allegorize the text, see a deeper meaning, in other words, that's not there. But I think this is interesting. That on the cross, both of Jesus' arms were outstretched. As God's judgment was poured out on him. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. Through Christ, we have been redeemed. Through Christ, we have been forgiven. Through Christ, we have been freed. Because Jesus took our judgment. He took the wrath that was owed to us. He paid the price to redeem us from slavery on the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for redemption that I was enslaved to sin, the hard heart, the heart made of stone, spiritually dead, hopeless. And you intervened in my life and brought salvation. You redeemed me through the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that reality is just heavy. The cost of our redemption, Lord, is reflected on daily by us, Lord. And that your grace, your amazing grace that was poured out on us, Lord, and that's promised to us is our motivation to be obedient to you as Christians because you are a good God and you can be trusted. Proven it. Be with us, Lord. In your son's name, amen.